introduce Caroline Riley. Uh, the title of her talk is Ambassador of Goodwill, Three Centuries of American Art in 1930s Europe. Thank you for the introduction. I want to thank everybody for coming to this talk. I've enjoyed the other lectures, and I'm hoping to be able to contribute in my own way. This is based on my dissertation research, so I really encourage questions. I'm actively working through. Could you speak up? I, I can, yes. Yeah. That is one thing I'm excellent at. <laughs> um, I encourage uh, questions. As, uh, I'm so sorry, I'm not used to Mac. Well, I am used to Mac, I'm not used to these other things. Uh, okay, so what I've gone ahead and done is I've broken my talk into two sections. One's an overview of the exhibition, and then the second half is really sort of a meditation on one object and the process by which I'm trying to apply some of my theories and ideas to the object. And I've also focused just really on the American relationship with the French, um, and consequently I went ahead and just translated all the French into English to make it a little bit easier. Okay. So to describe the exhibition Three Centuries of American Art on display in Paris in 1938, the Museum of Modern Art director A. Coulter Goodyear espoused, quote, American art is about to embark on a voyage as ambassadors of goodwill. France knows only too well the value of her arts as informal diplomats, and her penetration of other lands, via brush and clay, has stood her in good stead, politically and financially. What may be accomplished by art traffic flowing both ways is a matter for interesting conjecture. <coughs> My paper examines the powerful role that a single museum can play in constructing national art historical narratives by concentrating on the first comprehensive exhibition of American art in Europe, organized by MoMA and hosted first by the Musée de Luxembourg, which is just the Museum of Strangers or Foreigners, um, at the Musée de Jeux de Palme, uh, and on behalf of the American and French governments. Versions of the exhibition traveled to Paris, London, six American cities, and was scheduled to travel to Amsterdam, The Hague, and Rome. MoMA presented a history of American art that included not only paintings and sculpture, but also drawings, photographs, prints, film, and architectural models. Approximately 450 objects, in addition to all these sort of installations that my colleagues are also showing you. Uh, my work reveals the diplomatic and cultural goals the museums and participating governments pursued by defining American art in international terms during the 1930s. I argue that with this exhibition, MoMA attempted to take intellectual control of the history of American art. And my larger project examines the ideological and cultural framework that supported and consequently normalized a political alliance between the United States and three European nations uh, through this shared history of art. Specifically, this exhibition promoted both a perceived Americanness as well as international sensitivity by referencing other nations. So today I'm going to explore the categorization and reception of American art through the persuasion of rhetoric. The figurative language and artworks confirm the visual and textual ambiguity necessary to fulfill these dual diplomatic objectives. Uh, further, I examine the artwork slippage within the curator's uh, strict disciplinary categories. And I do this by focusing on the Roby House model to explore the tension that exists when artworks rhetorical function is to represent a concept of specifically democracy that the object's iconography or materiality contest. When describing the exhibition's purpose in a press release, Goodyear wrote, quote, 
It has never been our intention to direct one-way traffic through the museum, merely showing this country what has been happening abroad in art. We feel it fully as important to send a stream of American art in the opposite direction to show other nations what American artists are achieving. And I argue that this employing of nautical, vehicular, architectural, and industrial terminology, this shows curators, critics, and sponsors use metaphoric language of movement and development to group individual artworks into a manufactured history that promoted a singular, politically charged American art within the context of 1930s Europe. Uh, both French and American curators and public officials were actively involved in shaping and promoting the project. And I really don't have time to get into this for this lecture, but I'm happy to sort of answer any follow-up questions you have. I will mention that the French president, Leon Blum, hoped exhibitions in general would function as a tool for national reconciliation, pleading to French citizens after the labor strikes that were happening in France in 37-38. Um, that they hoped that exhibitions would make the French more, quote, greatly aware of their profound unity and strength. And Ambassador Bullitt, a close friend of President Roosevelt, saw the exhibition as an excellent propaganda tool, writing to Goodyear on July 22, 1937, quote, I am intensely interested in such an exhibition and hope that you feel that you can count on this embassy for any help you may need. Newspaper accounts describe the opening as pulsing with people and MoMA and the Musée de Luxembourg sent invitations to artists, art critics, and politicians, with MoMA, for example, sending 3,600 invitations alone to people in the United States. Further, the French government extended invitations to 30 uh, ambassadors, mostly from Europe and Asia, to attend the private reception of the exhibition with Bullet as special guest. Art critics in the daily press and art journals published hundreds of articles spanning the world from New Zealand to Germany. Um, indeed, reeling from the Great War's devastation, some French art critics highlighted American artworks that they believed documented a culture that had not been ravaged by war. For example, critics complimented American folk artists for their naivete. So for example, this baby in red high chair was particularly well received and they embraced a perceived American innocence and enabling type of cultural recovery on the part of Europeans. The depiction of technology in American art provided the French with a visual vocabulary espousing technology's conflicting role as both destructive and life-affirming. And I chose these two paintings because these were actually both acquired by the French government at the end of the exhibition. Yet, I, I really don't have time to talk as much about the reception as I'd like, so I'm going to focus just on one reference. In, June, in her June 9th, 1938 article for Tribune de Nationale, Madeleine Cotier, after viewing the exhibition, recalled, quote, Before 1855, one did not even know in France that Americans could pay attention to anything but their business. <laughs> it gets worse. It's really an incredible quote. For us, the citizen of the United States was my lord dollar. America in our eyes was Rockefeller and his dimes, the merchants of Philadelphia, the packers of Chicago, and the bankers of New York. How wrong we were. So that's I've given you sort of an overview of the exhibition. It was very brief. And now I'm going to turn to the second half of my page for because I felt like this kind of fit well with my other with my colleagues and talk specifically about the Frederick C. Roby House and how it functions as a metaphor for democracy and also a metonym of a specific building, seemingly transparent, 
yet a wholly different object from the original. In the 1938 uh, show, the Roby House model rested on a platform before black and white photographs of other properties designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. And it's important to remember that the French and the Americans were both aware of Wright in part through his careful self-promotion uh, in lectures and also the Vosmuth portfolio that came out a little bit before. The architectural model is an inherently difficult object to consider in relation to its reference. Issues of scale and changing context immediately come to mind when attempting to define the model. Complicating the rhetoric of Wright, I examined the compression of the model maker and photographers within the Wright name, as well as the compression of labor and space within the architectural model. And I argue that Wright's work, specifically his insertion of perceived democratic values into the layout of the Roby House, becomes a means for the French and Americans to become politically unified despite cultural differences. And the term democratic embodies both sort of a specific political form of government and a reference to widespread popular access to art. Wright and architectural scholars interpreted his open floor plan centered around monumental hearths as a type of democracy that replaced hierarchical public spaces with unified living spaces and utilized local rather than imported materials. The model with its overt materiality reaffirmed this democratic tone not through architectural massing, but through craftsmanship. The photographs typically of the exterior of Wright's buildings also contained a form of democracy, since the photograph could be easily taken and duplicated. And the seemingly contradictory objects of the crafted model and the documentary <coughs> photographs articulated MoMA's sort of um, really interesting vision of Wright. Most interestingly, architectural curator John McAndrew did not include sketches or floor plans in the exhibition, and it was the first and possibly only exhibition uh, organized by MoMA to follow this format. The photograph and model both suggested a perceived ratio in which each fit into a frame. The model sits on the press board, and the photograph cuts the image um, from its reference. And they're both representing a slice of time. You know, we have the model as it stands in 1938, and we have the house, because it's being photographed, as it stands in 1915. So you've got these very specific moments. Drawing on projective geometry in the 1940s humanizing of architecture, Alvar Aalto proposed, quote, instead of fighting rational mentality, the newest phase of modern architecture tries to project rational methods from the technical field out to human and psychological fields. McAndrew hinted at the same concern when he wrote that Wright employed, quote, a sympathetic understanding of the physical and psychological needs of the inhabitants to shape the plan of the Roby House. Clearly, McAndrew seeks to convince his audience that Wright consciously instilled within his houses a sense of comfort that could be interpreted as a greater investment in people and hence a democratic declaration. And it is in this complex, interrelated conversation between Europe and the United States that G. Lloyd Barnum's studio produced the 49 by 21 inch model of the Roby House. Used purely for presentation, the model, a metonym of the house, was nevertheless an object devoid of potential indexicality, despite its overt materiality. In general, the architectural model is often the rational essence of the building on which it is based. And while I agree the Roby House model appears to simplify the building through its reduced scale in relation to the body, I find it difficult to conceive of the space as simplified. 
Instead, the model not only compressed the space in the building, but it also constricted the amount of details included in the model. The purposeful choice of my term compression reinforces the tense relationship between the house and its representation. Given the importance of space and light to appreciate Wright's Roby House, the architectural model struggles to contain and evoke these qualities. Instead, it exudes a tangibility and exclusivity that induces a haptic instead of an optic relationship with the viewer. Not all architectural models perform the same way before the viewer, and in the Roby House example, the display of space within the house is lost to the model surfaces. As one approached on the first floor of the exhibition in Paris, the Roby House appeared isolated yet held within the paneled enclosure. The custom-made wooden platform that both presented and protected the model. A paradox exists between the house and the model that only emerges as a viewer approaches it. The closer to the object the viewer stood, the more his or her body overwhelmed the model and consequently the more distant the house became. Controlling the model through scale, the viewer recognizes the walkways formed in the parallel lines and forces his or her eyes to walk on them to find where they may lead. Yet the model still exerts control over the body. Its size and position on the wooden platform requires the viewer to change the position of his or her body to accommodate it leaning over to look in the windows, peeking behind to see if all sides are finished. The materials, cardboard, wood, paint, and plastic would have also been used within the house and prevents the model as a type of collage to be a textural extension of the building. The model's excessive details uh, form an indecipherable wall. For example, in the house, the windows on the second floor create a repetitive unity for the eye, linking the dining room and the living room. In the model, the same sequence appears compressed. The eye, first attracted to the details, becomes repelled upon closer inspection. And I argue that the model's materiality rebuffs the viewer and demonstrates a conflicted definition of democracy. By focusing one's eyes on the material used to make the model and how the Barnum uh, workshop constructed it, the viewer loses the conception of space. Among the materials, one tends to focus on the surface and is perceived in dexical relationship to the building. The materiality refutes an essence of the building, which is a concept formed of substance and non-substance. Hence, both positive and negative spaces are active elements in that building, but not the model. In art and agency, anthropologist Alfred Gell asserts that some patterns invite the eye while others rebuff in a combative strategy. And I really think that that's what's happening here. For example, when, you, when you're looking at this, just all these bricks are hand painted and it be, you become sort of overwhelmed by the sheer amount of detail on the surface. The sheer variety of finishes and numbers of cuts required to make the model compresses the varied surface and labor uh, with into the model. In understanding the construction of it, the viewer focuses on the point where the materials meet and how the model correlates to the building. Inevitably, the viewer seeks to discern if the model is a truthful representation of Wright's evocative use of space and light. And I argue Barnum utilized materiality in that space to define the house. Adding to its complexity, uh, the model has also been dislocated further from the building by its place in the 1938 exhibition Three Centuries of American Art in Paris. Uh, McAndrew chose not to hang photographs directly behind the model, emptying it in part of an institutional landscape. 
In addition, both the absence of curtain beneath the table and the presence of this gold picture frame, so it's almost, it feels like a canvas, you know, um, further reinforces and changes this context. And for all intents and purposes, the model really sort of floats in space. It's very different than a house. Frank Lloyd Wright designed the Roby House in 1908, and H.B. Uh, Barnum and Company completed the project in 1910. McAndrew notes, quote, instead of being cut up into many small box-like rooms, the living room flows freely into the hall, into the living room, into the dining room, reaching out for abundant light and air wherever needed. Windows are no longer uh, holes piercing the wall, but join each other to form long horizontal bands, and that's what I was describing earlier. Further, a chimney mass containing the house's four fireplaces rises through the center of the house, acting as the anchor to which the house is designed around on all three levels. Yet the model really sort of reduces the importance of the chimney. And I argue that compression becomes key to understanding the Roby House as a building and through its representation in the models and photographs. These objects are all tied to the creation of Frank Lloyd Wright as an American myth. In the terms of the building, the construction company is not really acknowledged in the building's history. It's known as a Frank Lloyd Wright house. Uh, on the model, Barnum's label is left ignored. It's, there's made no reference to it in the catalog. In the Bosmi's portfolio, the name of the draftsperson who produced the floor plan and line drawing is not inscribed. Finally, in the exhibition, the, photograph, the photographers of the architectural prints have been disavowed. Wright's <coughs> name has been transfixed to all. The labor has been congealed and formed into the myth of right, a myth to which he no longer lays claim. The artist and construction team are, in a way, compressed into the superstructure of right. These groups are pushed into the architect's mythology that, in turn, becomes a universal American ideal. As the first comprehensive examination of American art outside of the United States, MoMA defined American art for an international audience. The art exhibition enables two governments to draw an artistic alliance. The Americans saw the French as the arbiters of taste and therefore the only country that could accurately evaluate their art. The French interpreted the United States as an industrial nation formed of iron, dollars, and trade. The 1938 Three Centuries of American Art Exhibition provided a means for the French and Americans to build an artistic alliance during the turbulent interwar period. The figurative language and artworks confirm the visual and textual ambiguity necessary to fulfill the dual diplomatic objectives. For today, I asserted in the architecture section, the two nations emphasized a rhetoric that extolled buildings imbued with democratic values. While intended to be ambassadors of goodwill, the Roby House model and photographs struggled to represent and translate Frank Lloyd Wright's architecture to the French. Nevertheless, on the cusp of World War II, the French and Americans overlaid the artworks with rhetoric that affirmed their artistic and political aspirations. Thank you. Can I ask all three of you to come up? If I get